Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In this episode of From the Crow's Nest, I welcome current AOC President Glenn Carlson, callsign Powder, and Vice President and President-Elect Brian Hinckley, callsign Hanks, onto the show to talk a little bit about the EMS community, a state of the union of the community, the Association of Old Crows, and get their perspective on what's going on in, in the world today. So with that, gentlemen, good morning. Thank you for joining me on From the Crow's Nest. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. By the time our listeners hear the show, it'll actually be the afternoon, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll roll with it here. For those of our listeners who might not be familiar with the AOC and how we work the leadership transition, Powder, you are nearing the end of your two-year term, and you are going to pass the baton to Hanks here at the end of October at our annual convention. And Hanks has been serving as vice president during this past year of your term. So there's a smooth transition and, and one that would be very interesting to see in other settings. You both bring a wealth of experience. And, and I think the operational background that you both bring to the table is very relevant both for the association today and kind of understanding what's going on in the world, particularly with Ukraine and so forth. So, Powder, since you're the current president, you know, I wanted to bring you on here real quickly to talk a little bit about your background particularly the operational background you have and what that means in terms of preparing you for your term as president. Thanks, Ken. Yes, was B-52 electronic warfare officer. And actually, when I entered service and started flying in the B-52, it was actually under Strategic Air Command. So there was an awful lot there, especially with electronic warfare or electromagnetic warfare and MSO today, though we didn't necessarily call it that. And when did you start? What year was that? Well, I actually entered the service in 1984 and started flying in B-52s in 1986, which was also the same year I joined the Association of Old Crows. And with those, the missions for Strategic Air Command obviously was a nuclear one, and we were flying low level, and we would fly, you know, it was a deterrent mission. We had the Warsaw Pact, and we had NATO. And so... You know, we worked in those environments, but it was a pretty simple environment at the time. A lot of the radars were single frequency. All their parameters were single parameters. There was no dynamics, no changing frequencies or anything like that. Throughout my career, things evolved, as well as the mission for B-52s. I was fortunate enough to be in a unit, even under SAC, that had a conventional mission and a maritime mission. So we did an awful lot with the Navy, as well as some even with the Army at that point. And then that became more to a forefront as Air Combat Command took over. When was that? When did ACC take over? ACC took over in 1994. You were on B-52s at a very interesting time of, you know, in the mid-80s, you know, obviously then the fall of the Soviet Union and, and the transition 
military transition that we undertook in, in the early 90s and some of the decisions that were made um, and, of course, impacted the, the B-52 operations as well. Correct. Yes. You know, and when like when we deployed in 1990 for Desert Shield after Iraq invaded Kuwait, our primary mission was low level strike. And after the first three nights of Desert Storm, the, that mission shifted to a high altitude because the ground fire AAA was more of a lethal threat than the, the missiles were at that point. And then the B-52s evolved to using that high altitude and have evolved from using general purpose weapons to precision weapons and getting communications upgrades more so than electronic warfare upgrades. There wasn't a lot that was upgraded during my time on the B-52 due to the fact that the B-52 was going to go out of the service, was going to be retired. and Obviously, we know today that's changed. It's going to probably see its centennial with a new radar, new engines. They are updating the electronic warfare suite and actually going to go to a four-person crew. Uh, when I first started flying, it was a six-person crew. So things change. When did it enter service? Well, its first flight was on the 15th of April, 1952, and that was the YB-52. And then in June of 1955, the B-52A became operational. And then in October of 1962, the final H model was delivered, and that's the current models we're flying today. And it'll be in service now for at least another decade or, or, or so? It will be in service into the 2050s and beyond. So 100 years on, on that aircraft. Yes, but it, it's really been kind of an iconic platform for EW. I know when we first met early in the early 2000s, it's been about 20 years now, when I worked for Congressman Joe Pitts, who was a B-52 EWO in Vietnam. So before you, you were able to share a lot of common stories of, and experiences just from your operational experiences from the 80s and 90s to his in the 60s, which is, really, uh, which is a great connection to see. With that, I want to move over to Hinks for a bit. So Hinks, I wanted to bring you in on this because – Powder, of course, Air Force, you have uh, a deep history in the Navy on the EA-6B Prowler. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your role? Because you played a very important role, uh, particularly in the Prowler and EW community in the early 2000s with Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan. Yeah, thanks, Ken. Well, not to bore anybody who's already had access to my bio, but I have been born and raised as an EW guy, whether you call that electronic warfare or electromagnetic warfare really since I earned my wings back in 1984. I served 27 straight years in EW-related billets uh, across aviation and surface domains primarily, including, as you mentioned, uh, EA-6B Command. That was 2000 to 2003, standing up the crew Joint Crew Composite Squadron 1, JCCS-1, in Iraq to help the Army and the Marine Corps defeat radio-controlled IEDs, and then standing up the fleet's first electronic warfare center in 2008. I retired in 2010 out of uniform and transitioned kind of as a baby step to the dark side out here. I've been responsible for EW and electromagnetic spectrum operations as a portfolio for Amentum and our legacy companies for over 12 years. I wanted to bring up your operational background because in recent episodes of our podcast, you know, we've talked a lot about current events, about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. And I've always appreciated the fact that AOC has had a lot of operational perspective, operational EW, MSO perspective. And really when we talk about what's going on in, in Russia and Ukraine and around the world, 
the operational component is something that I think is very valuable that AOC brings to the table. So I wanted to get your thoughts on what you see happening currently, particularly over in Ukraine. Based on your experience, what lessons do you see U.S. learning or needing to learn out of observing what's going on over uh, in Europe? Sure. Well, I think the most important part that we're learning is there's a lot more than just great weapons systems and platforms, and that's the people behind it. So in addition to our, our OODA loop, right, observe, orient, decide, and act, we have a requirements process that, that is challenged to be able to sustain or even in some cases regain our capability advantage. I think where we really rely on our people as our greatest asset, it, it appears over in Ukraine that some of the Russian systems and platforms, the capability is there, but the training that goes behind it, the people that go behind it, the morale, the motivation, the, the understanding of how critical they truly are seems to be lacking. So as we go into new systems, our, our current capability and future capabilities, it's very, very important for us in industry as well as in defense to be able to say, let's focus on our people and let's make that you know, a really important part, a key performance parameter, if you will, of future systems. Powder? One is, is that, you know, I know I come from the era where you wanted air dominance and we talk about EMS dominance. You need to be able to have superiority or dominance in certain areas. There is no way that any one service country or even, you know, in conflict can have dominance over the entire spectrum at the time. So you need to be able to operate in those regions that you are equipped to and operate in those freely without interference. And that's a challenge because obviously our adversaries and potential adversaries know where we want to operate. They know, you know, every system that we have that has an RF signature, somebody's out there looking to find out what it is. It's just like what we're doing, you know, over the skies in Eastern Europe as we watch the Ukrainians and the Russians with RC-135s, Global Hawks, uh, P-8s, EP-3s, other ground sensors, other airborne sensors. You know, sensing is one of the key pieces to be able to determine what that environment is and then determining how we want to operate in it and where we can operate and where it's best to operate. That's a great segue. It's a great point because when we talk a lot about uh, how quickly technology is evolving and the threat is evolving, we sometimes lose track of the, the role that the people and the training takes in you know, successful MSO. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency 
research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So I wanted to kind of switch gears and talk a little bit about how is AOC addressing this issue of people in the EMSO community? One of the things that I was really pushing for and I continue to push for is the STEM, uh, the Education Foundation, when the uh, staff came up with the Future Five, you know, we embrace that as well. And it's, it's more than just the AOC, it's also industry. And I know like for myself at BAE, and I know what's going on at the other, all the other companies as well, is we realize that a lot of the expertise that has been around for electronic warfare and EMSO is nearing that retirement age. You know, I'm one of those. So there's a lot of attention to bring in STEM, to bring on new engineers, to engage with the uh, schools, um, the cyber school, electronic warfare school or the, and, and whatnot down in Florida. So trying to focus in on some of those areas and getting more mentors. That was another program that was started and is trying to take hold, uh, getting that moving forward as well. As you take control of the reins, Hanks, you know, what are some of the aspects or programs that you're excited about uh, from an AOC perspective that kind of help with this notion of really bringing in the right people to the EMSO, the EMSO community to navigate some of these future challenges? I think our whole mission statement really, you know, we started off by saying we, 
we provide value to our members and to our stakeholders, right? Really, the focus of the AOC is really all about our membership. So I think it's important as we go forward to establish our identity, you know, to really make sure that we're growing membership by offering folks a reason to join, whether they're from in Europe, we're predominantly an industrial base, whereas in the U.S., we have much more of a national defense and a military presence in our membership. But as we build advocacy, what we can do as a, as a premier international organization is to interact with the leaders of industry, the leaders of uh, national defense, and, you know, the leaders in technology so that we can bring those folks together and really offer our younger crows uh, a tremendous network. Looking back kind of at State of the Union over the course of the past two years, what are you most proud of passing on to Hanks in terms of the state of the AOC? And what do you look forward to seeing continue to mature as time passes and AOC continues to grow? I think one of the biggest things is that the AOC continues, like you mentioned, to be vibrant. It's relevant, especially with use of commercial, more commercial uh, and civilian assets and capabilities across, whether it's in the military or across the civilian side. The fact that we have started programs and we've been working to grow, especially the Young Crows program, you know, there's been some work done on awards. You know, I can't say enough about the staff and the board. Hanks has actually been the vice president for two years because I appointed him as the vice two years ago before he was elected as the president-elect. So he developed an excellent five-year strategy that we're executing. And so that's good continuity there. One of the other things, you know, as an association, and we're financially sound. We've come through COVID stronger than we ever thought we would. And we're actually larger today, even after COVID, than we were going into COVID. So that speaks that, you know, to our relevancy and that people are looking for information and looking for knowledge and whatnot. You know, more and more in-person events and hybrid events, I think, are going to be critical to the futures to keep that going. So I wanted to just touch on something you said, you know, you talked about a lot of the, the, the young crow designation. That's, that's an internal designation uh, with the AOC, but there's a couple programs. I know that AOC has really has started over the last few years or, and, and, and the newest one is called the future five. And then there's also efforts to bring young engineers from Pax river up to our convention. And we're hoping to ex- expand that. Could you talk a little bit about this future five program? Because I think that that's an important access point for a lot of young engineers trying to, and young operators trying to figure out how to utilize AOC in terms of their professional development. Yeah. You know, with future five, basically we've reached out across industry, across academia, government, and the military to find those folks that are probably going to be those future leaders. And they apply, and there is a board that goes over. This year, we had a number of applicants for that. This is the inaugural year for it. One thing, you know, we actually have a wide, we the representation of those that won cover most of those bases between being active duty and overseas to being in industry, just finishing up school and whatnot. Um, 
I think one of the things that'll be neat to see, hopefully in the future, is that grow is into more of an international piece as well. That's you know, our international piece is one of those key parts of our organization, and one of those things that we definitely have to make sure we are looking at, and not just focusing on the U.S. side. The AOC is undertaking the implementation of a five-year strategy. The strategy was developed last year under your leadership, Hanks. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the strategy and why it's going to be important for growing AOC uh, over the next five years, but also so that we can better reach our stakeholders across government, industry, military around the world? So, Ken, um, as you know, you you and I actually, uh, with a great team, worked on that five-year strategy that, that Powder approved. And I think it's important, you know, in any business to have have a strategy, have a five-year strategy. We will be keeping that updated as we move. But the, the vision for the AOC remains consistent. We have to identify everybody in the AOC needs to understand that we are a the premier global professional association. Uh, and we what do we do? We advocate for them across defense and government, uh, militaries, academia, and it's in our it's in our vision, but we it all leads toward achieving and sustaining that military advantage in the electromagnetic operating environment. That's key. Our strategy is really built on doing those things that will get us there, bringing together expertise, providing the networking for our folks, and getting to the leadership. We have access, because we are the AOC, to leadership to be able to highlight this the criticality of what it is that our members are working on in in both military and and industry. So I would say again that the strategy as far as growing our membership, building that advocacy, being smart because we are a business in the end, about diversifying our streams of of revenue to keep us a robust organization. And really strengthen the organization overall, including our, our international presence and international programs. So last question here you know, posed to the both of you, and Powder, we'll go first. What are some of the messages that you would like to take to our stakeholders in government, industry, military, here in the U.S., and, and, and our partners and allies around the world in terms of what we need to continue to work hard on uh, to advance EMS operations globally? First word that comes to my mind is collaboration and then communication. And part of communication is actually listening. I've seen it within industry. I've seen it as being the customer where one or the other will talk, but while they're listening, they're not necessarily really listening. And I think that's key as we see these events and being open to what's, you know, the Russia-Ukraine is only one piece Indo-PACOM with China is another piece of where you're seeing an awful lot of the information side being utilized, especially by China. But being able to cross those lines, being open to communication between across those academia, industry, government, military, and joining all those parties together to listen talk with each other, communicate, and define where there's opportunities to collaborate. Again, there's, you know, we've switched from where a lot of military technology pushes 
commercial and civilian technology, where now it's more civilian commercial pushing the military technology. And Hinks, any messages that you want to pass on as you begin your your term as president here in a few weeks? Well, I'd say, again, Ken, the number one thing for us is advocacy and, and highlighting the criticality of EW. Unfortunately, it's it's often the last to be funded in peacetime and the first to be funded when a crisis happens. People forget about how important it is when everything is going well. And so it, it does keep me awake at night. You know, the next catastrophic event, maybe a, a cruise missile into the side of a surface ship or, or another event is what's going to take to increase the visibility, and I, I hope it's not that case. So I think as we look across the, the globe, it's definitely important. We want to focus. We want to build our international presence for the AOC. We're putting efforts into that. And when you talk about things like MSO, it really doesn't care what color uniform you're wearing or what country you're in. We all rely on the electromagnetic spectrum as, as the one and only physical medium that all communication has to flow through. So in the Navy, we combine several ratings, and they all have to, powder's word, collaborate uh, in order to bring this to success. So I do think I agree with Powder. Uh, he's set me up for success myself, stepping into the reins. I very much appreciate that. And I think we'll do a lot of collaboration to bring somewhat stovepiped defense service members and from different career paths to bring them all together to kind of work this problem together. That is all the time that we have for today's episode. Uh, Powder and Hinks, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me here on From the Crow's Nest and look forward to continuing talking with you here in the future. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Well, that will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. If you're interested in learning more about the Association of Old Crows, please visit their website at crows.org. And as you've heard mentioned, their annual convention, AOC 2022, is just around the corner at the end of October, and you can learn more and register at 59.crows.org. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners. You can visit the AOC page on LinkedIn or our Twitter account to submit questions and topics for future conversation. And of course, feel free to share your thoughts and recommendations on the podcast. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.